to another episode of Issue by Issue, a DC Comics completionist podcast. The only podcast that I'm aware of that's going issue by issue through the DC multiverse um, from Action Comics number one to the present, or as close as we can get in my lifetime. Uh, I'm your host, as always, Nick Byers, and today we are going to be covering All-American Comics number 17, Action Comics number 27, and More Fun Comics number 58. We're going to see Green Lantern, Superman, Zatara, the Spectre, and Dr. Fate having their little adventures, saving the day, you know, that kind of jazz. But as always, we need to set the scene, the real-world history of what was going on when these issues were coming out. Uh, So, June 16th to 17th, after becoming Prime Minister of France, Philippe Pétain, or Pété, I'm not a French speaker, so Pété, Pétain, I don't know, P-E-T-A-I-N, began negotiating France's surrender to Nazi Germany. Uh, The the Vichy French government would be established around a, a month later, and so they would be sort of a German-controlled, somewhat uh, puppet uh, government uh, for France uh, throughout the war. Uh, June 23rd, uh, after getting France's surrender, Hitler arrives in Paris. He sees the sights. Uh, it's where famous pictures of him in front of places like the uh, Eiffel Tower and uh, the Arc de Triomphe uh, come from. You see uh, Hitler uh, in front of those, uh, and it's a really, really weird feeling to see that. Uh, June 28th, Wendell Wilkie uh, accepted the nomination uh, for the Republican presidential candidacy. He was a dark horse candidate who had never held public office before. He was a, I believe he was a businessman of some kind, um, which has weird parallels to the situation that we dealt with in, in 2016. Uh, luckily for them, uh, he didn't win, because uh, so who knows what would have happened. President Roosevelt on that same day signs the Smith Act into law, which set criminal penalties for advocating for the overthrow of the U.S. government by force or violence, which also weirdly parallel to the uh, January 6th uh, insurrection in, uh, what was it, 2021? Man, it's it's crazy to think it's been three years since that happened. Uh, July 2nd. The U.S. Congress enacted the Export Control Act, granting the president authority to restrict the export of goods that had military applications such as machine parts, munitions, and tools in order so they do not fall into the wrong hands. Typically, you think, oh, the free market, I can sell to whoever I want. Well, no, you can't because the U.S. government is going to stop you from selling to the bad guys and whoever they decide that those people are. In this situation, it's pretty clear cut. It's the Nazis uh, and Italy. Uh, so that's that's what's going on. Those are there's some big events that are taking place in the world in uh, June and early July of 1940. So let's get into our first issue, which is All American Comics number 17. It was released June 20th, 1940, with a cover date of August 1940. No debuts in this issue. Uh, just a, a Green Lantern story. Uh, he's just gonna fight uh, governmental corruption which is not typically what I think of Green Lantern fighting. He seems a little bit too powerful to be just fighting, just like Superman, just to be fighting governmental corruption or or business corruption. But that's, uh, those were the big boogeymen of the 1940s. So, uh, and I mean, there it's, it's an honest, it's an honest living, you know, it's an honest day's work to fight corruption. 
it just feels like maybe a waste of their talents. So on the production side, we have uh, Green Lantern being written and drawn by Bill Finger and Martin Nodell. Uh, he went by Mart Nodell in his creative career, which is a weird abbreviation for Martin, but I mean, teach their own, right? Uh, I do want to mention, it's kind of interesting. I mean, it's not interesting. It's, it's, it's nice. On the second page of All American Comics number 17, there's a little full page ad that says, Thanks, boys and girls, for the wonderful reception you gave last month's issue of All American Comics with its exciting new feature, The Green Lantern. So that's that's cool. It's kind of saying, hey, thanks for thanks for, you know, giving us that 10 cents. Because I think that's how much they cost. 10 cents, yeah, uh, to read The Green Lantern story. Uh, or the other stories. But, you know, probably uptick in sales with that. Because superheroes are really, really big. They're becoming really, really popular at this time. Uh, with, you know, all the new superheroes coming out. So I thought that was pretty cool. But uh, let's get into the story itself. It, of course, gives a little blurb about uh, Alan Scott and his abilities and how his, like, origin was sort of paragraph size. Uh, actually, two paragraphs of his origin and his superpowers. Uh, it, you know, it talks about how he's immune to metals, uh, all that kind of stuff. He got his ring from the Green Lantern, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then we get into the story proper, which is uh, in the city of Metropolis. Has Metropolis been... Metropolis has been mentioned before, right? Yes. Metropolis was first mentioned in Action Comics number 16 way long ago, September 1939. Okay, so I wasn't crazy. I was like, why would it debut in um, in All-American Comics and not Action Comics? But that Because it didn't. Uh, I think typically in the present, Green Lantern's more uh, related to Gotham City or New York City. I'm not sure. But uh, he's in Metropolis at this point in time. Uh, Cyrus Gorson, the commissioner of public works, is going through the bids to build a new library for the city, which is big money. Uh, libraries are pretty big, and uh, government money is nice. Uh, when he announces that it's going to Muller contractors and all the other contractors, all the other bidders in the room are outraged. Uh, one even says why this is an outrage. So he's outraged. Uh, Alan Scott is there. He's a young engineer uh, with his employer, John Hall. And Scott, Alan Scott cannot understand why uh, Mr. Hall didn't get the bid. His was surely the lowest price, and that's typically how those things go, because uh, obviously the city government or anyone wants to save money, wants to get it done for as cheaply as possible while, while still being good quality. So it's like, well, that's weird. Uh, but John Hall is like, well, Mueller would get the bid anyway, no matter what his price. It's common talk that Commissioner Gorson is a silent partner in the Mueller concern, but nobody can prove it. So that's a conflict of interest. And so that's a, a in government, there's, you know, it's, it's illegal to uh, make decisions about things that you were involved in financially. Uh, so you have to, like when, when judges, like the Supreme Court judges, are typically supposed to recuse themselves, or judges anywhere, recuse themselves when they have any sort of affiliation or connection with uh, the crime or the case or the victim or the uh, perpetrator, any, any sort of involvement, you're supposed to recuse yourself because it means you can't be impartial. So in this situation, Gorson cannot be impartial because he has a financial benefit to choosing Mueller over somebody else. 
So, uh, Scott is, of course, outraged. He's, he's like, what? The taxpayers have to pay an extra high price for a library so that Gorson can make money for his own company? It's like, yeah, dude. That's called corruption. Read a book. Um, of course, you have read a book. You're an engineer. So, uh, Alan Scott, back at his home, decides on a bold course of action. He first goes to Gorson's office and yells at him. He calls him a skunk uh, and says that that he knows that John Hall's bid was the lowest and that uh, Gorson is a grafter. He's, he's, he's performing graft, which is not like a skin graft, which saves lives. It's more like a financial graft, which steals money. And Gorson, of course, gets angry and says, Get out! Get out before I have you thrown out! I scared my dog by saying that. Um... <laughs> And uh, he then goes to Muller and says that he's a crook and he's working hand-in-hand with Gorson. And Muller's like, uh, so what? Like, I mean, technically, technically, Muller's not doing anything wrong. Um, I don't believe so. He's definitely doing something that's morally questionable. But it's it's Gorson that's doing the crime. Muller, it's not like Muller is blackmailing Gorson into choosing him or any sort of criminal coercion. He's just, you know... Gorson has a financial reason to choose Mueller, and so he does. So, I, I mean, as much as I uh, am supposed to not like Mueller because he is bald uh, in this in this story, so I am supposed to think that he's a bad guy, uh, even though not all bald guys are evil. Because even his henchmen, even his henchmen that he sends to kill Alan Scott, which is what's going to happen. They're going to try to kill Alan Scott. He's also bald. And I am just, and I know I talk about this way too often, but it's just like, Come on. People with hair commit more crimes than bald people. It's just a fact. It's just a fact of statistics. So um, back at Alan Scott's house, he returns home. And the first thing he's going to do is he's going to charge up his ring because he thinks things are about to pop off. Uh, so he's like, I got to protect myself with the green lantern. And so he charges up. It's like, yeah, nice. Full battery. And then he's going to take a little walk. So he takes a little walk down the street. And he's being followed in a car. And the car drives by, a little classic drive-by shooting, shoots him. Uh, and they think, of course, that they've shot him. Because typically when you shoot a human being, it, uh, it gets them, goes right through their body, and uh, typically kills them or maims them or injures them very badly. But not all human beings have the magical green lantern ring. So uh, Alan Scott takes off his suit and reveals his green lantern costume after the car has driven away. And I will say... We've all seen pictures of the Green Lantern costume. The cape is very big, and the cowl, or like the collar, is very, very tall. So I don't know how comfortable that can be to wear underneath a suit. It just seems like it's very, it'll be very bulky. Uh, I mean, a cape in general underneath a suit, that's like, you gotta tuck it into your pants. Not comfortable. So he flies off to follow the speeding car, and he follows it to Muller Contractors and Builders, their uh, storehouse on the outskirts of Metropolis. And Alan Scott thinks, this definitely proves Gorson is in with Muller, else why would they have tried to kill me? Well, you don't know that Gorson was involved. It was just a, it could have just been a random drive-by shooting. It's the 1940s. I guess, I don't really think of the 1940s as being that dangerous. It's not like it's the 1920s after Prohibition was in effect, because that was dangerous. Um, But so he thinks that Gorson is involved. He must have seen, he doesn't say, but he must have seen Gorson go into the building. So he does the thing, which is a power that I never knew Green Lantern has, and I don't know if he has in in the present, but he phases through the wall, much like the Spectre or Danny Phantom. 
and he walks in and he overhears uh, a conversation between Muller and Gorson, and uh, they're talking to the the goon who shot Alan Scott, and he says, "Yeah, I didn't. Do I ever miss? Uh, no, of course not. He won't talk anymore." And Gorson says, "I hate murders, but if you think there won't be any more trouble." I guess then it was for the best. You know what, Muller? I also hate murders. I think most people do. That's not a bold statement to say, I hate murders. So Alan Scott, or Green Lantern, sorry, he appears and he says, that's where you guessed wrong, Gorson. It was for the worst for you. And they're all shocked. Like, how did you get in here? And he says, I'm the Green Lantern, and I'm here to put you boys out of business. So they shoot him with guns. Of course, that doesn't work. Bounces right off because he's got Green Lantern anti-metal powers. Um, so the, the boys, the goons rush him, uh, but the Green Lantern, uh, uses his ring to move them and slam them into a wall or, uh, no, sorry, I should say they crash into a solid wall of blazing light. So he puts a wall in front of him, uh, to stop them from getting to him. He then just sort of beats him up with standard Alan Scott, good at beating up people, powers, and so Muller and Gorson are just like standing there being like, you can't bulldoze us. You can't bully us. So Alan Scott says, all right, gentlemen, I'll convince you. Let me show you what I can do to these steel girders. And so he shoots out a beam of concentrated green light and melts the steel girders. Uh, and they're, of course, you know, scared and, and they're mad. He says, they're ruining He's ruining us. That'll cost us a fortune. Steel girders aren't cheap. And so uh, Muller says, okay, buddy, lay off. I don't know what your game is, but I'm ready to talk business. Come on into my office. So they all go into the office, and they ask what Alan Scott wants. And he says, I want you boys to dissolve your little partnership and get out of town. And the reason that Muller asked him into his office is because he has a secret button on his desk. And he walks over to it and presses it without Alan Scott seeing or while he's like, you know, having a regular conversation. And f- like the ceiling, basically a board is like, uh, I guess there must be a hinge on one side and there's a latch on the other. So just basically part of the ceiling crashes down or like swings down and hits Alan Scott in the head. And obviously he is not immune to wood. Uh, his, uh, I guess you could call it a weakness if you want. Uh, so... They're talking about how clever they are for having that, because apparently Muller has has done that to plenty of dudes, which is, I think, assault. You can't just hit people on the head and knock them out. Like, hits them so hard, it knocks them out. So they chain up Alan Scott, and they throw him into the river. And so Alan Scott is, is sinking to the bottom of the watery grave. But luckily, uh, typically when you throw people who are passed out into the water, they wake up because it's like, wow. My body says, there's no air here. I need to wake up. So he is awake, and he's realizing um, that he's underwater, and that he's chained. So he's like, okay, I can use the ring to cut through these iron chains because it, they are made of metal. So he does that, and then he's going to use then – he, then he flies through the water and out and says, I'm going to put a little applied psychology to work on Commissioner Gorson. And it's very, very funny that his name is Commissioner Gorson because there's also Commissioner Gordon in Gotham. That's funny. Uh, So, Gorson and Muller 
are talking back at Mueller contractors and builders. And Gorson's like, I guess we're safe now. And Mueller's like, the only thing we've got to worry about is that the green guy's ghost might come back to haunt us. Ha, ha. So Alan Scott has overheard this, and he comes through the wall and glows green and says, I even the spirit of a murdered man is not respected in this room. And Gorson is, is scared. He's like, there's a spirit. His ghost has come back. Look, he's dripping with water. It's like, it's like the, uh, the Christmas carol, basically, with the chains. And Alan Scott, or Alan Scott's ghost, says, I cannot rest in my watery grave till I have finished my original mission. I must appear before you night after night until you do as I say. Only then can I return from whence I came. Uh, and Gorson breaks immediately. He says, please don't haunt me. I, I, I can't stand it. What must I do? And Alan Scott explains to Commissioner Gorson that he needs to resign from office, make a public statement saying that he's been partners, silent partners with Mueller, and he's been doing corruption by giving Mueller government contracts. Mueller is not convinced. He thinks that this is some sort of magician's hocus pocus. So he attempts to shoot the ghost. Of course, doesn't work because guns don't work on Alan Scott. And so instead, in a bout of, of crazed action, shoots wildly and shoots at his partner multiple times. Just like, I think, feels like multiple bullets go into Gorson. So Alan Scott becomes solid again, immediately, and punches Mueller, knocking him out. He then calls police headquarters and tells them to come down to Mueller's warehouse on the river. And says that Commissioner, not Commissioner, Mueller has just killed Commissioner Gorson. And the cop must have asked who that was and uh or who's on the phone and greenland says who am i well i'm the little man who wasn't there click hangs up uh the police arrive at the warehouse and they're looking over they find muller knocked out um and they're like hey what's what's this on muller's cheek it's like a weird mark uh and on his on his cheek is the is the sign of the green lantern like the punch was such a powerful punch that it, it kind of imprinted the lantern into his face. And then the next day, Alan Scott's at work, and his boss asks him if he's heard about Mueller killing Gorson, and that uh, Mueller's gunmen are being held for questioning, but they insist that a green ghost was responsible. Ooh. And uh, Mr. Hall says, they, saw, they say he calls himself the Green Lantern, and Alan Scott says, sounds too much like a comic book character to really exist. Things like that don't happen these days. Utterly fantastic. Um, which kind of implies that I guess superhero comic books exist in the DC universe at this time. Which is, if you've read Multiversity, is uh, actually a plot point in that. Uh, the New 52 event Multiversity written by um, oh Grant Morrison. Uh, where like there's com everybody every other universe is a comic book in another universe. It's 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 I mean it's Grant Morrison, -y, so it's a little bit weird, but it's a good story. Um, so I guess maybe maybe those comic books exist in this universe already. Bum bum bum. But that is gonna do it for All American Comics number seventeen. Uh, so let's move on to Action Comics number twenty seven, released June twenty fifth, nineteen forty, with a cover date of August nineteen forty. Uh, no debuts, uh, just Superman, Zatara, uh, Superman written by Jerry Siegel, penciled by Paul Cassidy, and inked by Dennis Neville. And Zatara 
written by Gardner F. Fox and drawn by Fred B. Gardiner. So, let's get into it. Action Comics number 27's Superman story starts with Clark Kent getting a date with Lois Lane, which every time it happens, because it's happened more than once, he's always like, I can hardly believe it's happening. It's like, Clark, this has already happened before. You've gone on multiple first dates with Lois. Every time she calls you a coward and then um, she, you know, storms off. This time's a little bit different. She doesn't storm off. Yeah, you do. But still, this is not the first time you've gone on a date with Lois. I don't know why you have such bad memory. But nevertheless, he uh, rings the doorbell and walks into Lois's house. And she's on the phone uh, with a solicitor from the Brentwood Rehabilitation Home. Why is it called a rehabilitation home? What have these young boys done to need rehabilitation? I don't know. But it's a rehabilitation home for young boys. And they're asking for a $3 donation to the Brentwood um, Rehabilitation Home. And just for your reference, that in today dollars, or December 2023 dollars, because that's as far as the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics calculator goes at this moment, uh, that would be $66.20, which is not an inconsequential ask for a donation. Uh, No one would ask that much today. That's insane. But uh, $3, she'd be happy to contribute. Actually, she'd be delighted to contribute those $3. Uh, Clark says after she's done with her phone call that he's heard unsavory rumors about that place. And she's like, oh, well, do you want to repeat them to me? And he says, of course, uh, it's that the home is being run by a hypocritical couple whose sole interest is not in their young charges, but in inflating their bank account. Even, isn't that always the way? Now, I will say, I got to stop right here. This storyline is incredibly similar to an earlier storyline where Clark Kent and Lois Lane investigated a an, an orphanage, uh, a place where like orphans lived, and it turns out the superintendent was uh, corrupt and treating the children badly. It's like, well, that's you're doing the same story again, but this one gets wacky uh, and gets weird. So you'll see. So they, they get into Clark's car, which I didn't know he had a car, uh, but he's got a car. Because he always takes cabs. We always see him take cabs. We never see him driving cars. But he's driving a car, uh, a roadster, actually. The, 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 it's, it's one of those where the uh, front windshield goes down, which I don't know why in the world, at any speed, you'd want the windshield to be folded forward and not protecting your eyes. Because the wind getting in your eyes, can't see, you got to squint, maybe like dust. I don't know. Uh, but he's driving a very, I mean, I think it's a fancy car. Roadsters are very cool. Um, and Lois is adamant that she's going to prove that the home is, is on the up and up. So they're going to investigate. And Clark's like, ugh, there go my expectations of a quiet, delightful evening alone with you. Yeah, Clark, that was never going to happen. Sorry. Sorry, bro. So, uh, Lois and Clark, uh, drop in unexpectedly on this rehabilitation home, probably at... I don't know, when do dates start? Seven? Seven sound good? At seven o'clock at night, be like, hello, we'd like a tour. We're from the Daily Planet. And of course, the the Tweeds, or the couple that run the place, uh, are like, sure. So they uh, give them a tour. They show them the uh, uh, bedrooms. They're nice. They have a radio. They're very clean. Uh, it's, 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 I mean, it's a nice room. It's got a lamp. It's got a desk. Everything a growing boy needs to, to grow his body and mind. They have a workshop where the, uh, the boys can keep themselves busy and learn a skill, learn a trade. And we see a boy he's working on, uh, that looks like maybe a, a, 
um, a jigsaw or a uh, hole punch, a drill press, one of the two, which children of this age should not be working on this kind of machinery. So that's weird. Uh, so it's all looking good. And uh, they, they say, oh, because this is a private institution. It's not funded by the state at all. We rely on donations. And it's like, okay. Uh, and Lois says, I understand. Here's a $10 bill. So they got $10 out of Lois when she was originally going to give them three. That's a pretty good, that's a pretty good uh, return on investment because let's, let's do his calculator again. $10 in January 1940. I guess it's not January. It's like June. Calculate. It would be $217.55. She, she basically just pulled $200 out of her pocket and gave it to this, this uh, rehabilitation home. That's insane. I would never, not because I don't think that things like this deserve donations, but in this economy, I don't got $200 to give. Come on. And I mean, Lois is a a reporter and a female reporter at that. She's getting paid probably even even less than 70% uh, of what Clark is getting paid. So um, she's just kind of willy-nilly with her money, not very financially literate on, on, on that. So... Lois and Clark leave, and they're like, uh, Lois says, well, uh, would you look at that, Clark? Looks like you were wrong. Uh, Me, Lois, I'm much smarter than you, which, to be fair, she is. She's much smarter than Clark. Uh, When they're leaving the walls of this rehabilitation home, a boy, the boy that they saw in the workshop, drops down from the walls, uh, which is uh, not normal. And they, they, t- they say, oh, you know, who are you? What, what happened? They look at his hands. They're all cut up and bloody. It's like, well, what, what happened to your hands? He says, I'm Davy Merrill, but please don't tell Mr. Tweed what I've done. And so he explains that his hands got all cut up because they placed glass shards either into the wall or on top of the wall so that uh, the boys couldn't escape, couldn't climb out, which if they're just placed on top of the wall, just sweep them aside. But if they're embedded in the wall... Then, oh, it does say embedded. Duh. And I've read that, too. It's embedded into the wall, so you can't. So it's, you know, that's not good. But bring a coat. Drape a coat over it. I mean, I'm not I'm not here to critique Davy Merrill. He's, he's doing his best. He's just a boy trying to get out of, the, uh, of this terrible place. So they take him to a doctor. I guess they take him to a drugstore, and they get some, like, ointment and bandages for his hands. And they take him to a diner, and he's, he's starving, so he's eating a bunch of food. And he says, oh, I, I got to get back to the home now. If Mr. Tweed ever finds out I skipped out of the place, he'll skin me alive. Hey, bro. Hey, Davey. I wouldn't go back. I just really wouldn't go back. I mean, I know life on the streets isn't good. But at least you're not being tortured. But then again, it is a place to stay. Sleeping outside isn't great. Never mind, Davey. Go back. Go back. It'll, things will eventually get better. And if they don't, you'll just eventually become 18 and you can leave. So, uh, Clark and Lois ask what's like, what the conditions at the home are really like. And Davey says, well, they're, you know, they make the kids labor from dawn to near midnight. Well, I mean, it was seven and he was working in the workshop. Isn't that suspicious? To me, it is. Uh, and if they dare to raise a, a fuss, uh, they get beaten and worse. I don't know what gets, what's worse than getting beaten, cut, burned. I don't know. And sometimes at night, big trucks drive off with the things that the kids make uh, to probably to sell in another state. So they are, they are 
profiting off of the labor of children, which is, at this point, I believe, illegal. I don't believe that children can work. Child labor laws, I think, are in effect at this point. Uh, so Lois, of course, wants to go back and rip the lid off of this story, this scoop. And Clark is like, well, I, I think we should probably just call the police, Lois. And she's like, fine, I'm going to go back. Me and Dave are going to go back, and I'm going to search for incriminating evidence. If you're afraid, then you can go. And he says, well, I, maybe I'll just go back to the planet, and I'll start writing up this story. So he leaves. And so Lois and, and Davey go back to the Brentwood Rehabilitation Home, and they uh, sneak onto the property. They don't mention how they get over the wall again. Like, do do they cut up their hands? I mean, Lois is wearing gloves, but I doubt they're, like, work gloves. So somehow they get inside the wall, and they are creeping around the house when they when a dog spots them. And Davey reveals that this dog's name is Black Satan. Yep. His name is Black Satan, which typically when you give a dog a name, it is a puppy. It is newborn. It is, it is a, a tabula rasa, a blank slate on the world. So really setting that dog up for a weird life by naming him Black Satan. Uh, just a really weird name. So, but let's move on away from Black Satan. The further we can get away from Black Satan, the better. Uh, so the, the Lois and Davy they start to run. And uh, Lois pulls out what's called a skeleton key, which uh, that's not, I mean, I, I know that those were a thing because the locks at the time are actually pretty, pretty easy to trip the tumblers. Uh, they're all pretty cookie cutter at that. Uh, so, but I, I, I just don't know if a skeleton key would really work that well, but but uh, she gets a, she pulls out a skeleton key and opens the door, unlocks the door, and gets inside, and they get in just in time. Another second, and they would have gotten him. Or he, the dog, would have gotten them. Uh, so they tiptoe, tiptoe through the dark house, and Davy shows where the kids actually sleep. They're, like, crammed into these rooms and these bunk beds, which, I mean, that's... I mean, that happens in, like, the army and stuff, too, but you sign up for that. And it happens in other places, but, I mean, it, it's, it's, being, it's being made to believe that they're, like, crammed in, crammed in. So, like, maybe not even a lot of space in between the bunk beds themselves. So, Davey, uh, Lois tells Davey that he can turn in for the night um, so that he doesn't get in trouble. Which, as we find out in, like, two panels, he must have not went directly into that room where he, he said is where they sleep. Uh, but uh, Lois goes to a desk, a random desk, and uh, finds uh, stuff, finds evidence, and Mrs. Tweed has woke, woken up by Black Satan's barking. And uh, which, when she sits up in bed, it looks like she has a mustache and is a guy, but she is a lady. <laughs> she like has a dude, like a dude face, like how um, the artist draws dudes' faces. It looks like that. So I'm like, what? Uh, but it, it is a lady. It's Mrs. Tweed. Uh, she turns on a light, and she sees Davy. She's like, what are you doing out of bed? Fully clad, which means fully clothed. And he's like, I ain't, I ain't done nothing. It's like, well, but Davy, that's not a great start. Don't say I haven't done anything, because that makes it seem like you've done something. Uh, and, and Mrs. Tweed shakes him and says, tell me what you've done. Tell me what you've been up to, you little rodent. She sees his hands, and they're bandaged. And he's like, ah, you climbed the walls. You'll pay for this. And so Mr. Tweed also wakes up. I guess they don't sleep in the same room. Uh, from the looks of them, I wouldn't want to sleep in the same room with them either. Haha, <laughs> take that, cartoons. Uh, so they 
take Davy downstairs and they lock him in a locker. And he says that he can hardly stand up, which, I mean, you could sit down, but that's still probably cramped. Uh, so it's going to be an uncomfortable night uh, in these cramped quarters for Davy. But it's, it's to cure his rebellious notions uh, and that he has long hours of regret ahead. Ponder that. And then he calls him a little fool. It's like, all right, dude. You're like 40 years older than this kid. Calm down. Lois, meanwhile, is still exploring the house. Uh, she finds the room with a long row of telephones, uh, which is where the charity solicitors uh, must work. And they get 50% of every donation, which is a lot. So, like, $5. Someone got $5. Someone just made $100. Well, I guess, no, they didn't. The solicitors didn't do that one. They would have gotten a dollar fifty, which they would have gotten like thirty bucks. That's pretty good for for a night's work. Um, and then they then Lois finds a record of profits. They find she finds their like ledgers of the uh, materials made by the children in the sweatshop. Uh, so she's like, oh, nice. This stuff will uh, sh- surely get a conviction. It's like, well, Lois, you've acquired that evidence illegally so it is Ill- inadmissible in court so now you've now you've done it but uh before that can happen the tweeds find her and seize her and they find out you know it's always lois from the daily planet it's that girl reporter uh excuse me woman reporter and they tie her up and they bring her downstairs and they just have a, a jail cell down there they have a barred cage built into the wall which i mean you'll see some other stuff or i'll explain some other stuff uh in this house that is buck wild uh, that that makes this actual jail cell in the basement seem normal so she hears davy kind of moaning and crying in the locker and so she gets the gag that they've put over her mouth which i mean she's in the basement what is she going to do so she gets the gag off her mouth and she you know her and davy are talking and davy's like oh let me out miss lane and she's like well i'm actually also locked in somewhere so i really can't help you and lois is thinking oh what a fool i've been if i don't listen to clark he thought I thought he was being a coward like normal because that's all he's ever shown me basically at all. Um, but I, you know what? I shouldn't have I shouldn't have barged in here. A because it's breaking and entering. It's a classic B and E, and so that's illegal. First off, but enough about Lois's crimes. Uh, meanwhile, Clark has uh, changed into Superman. I was wondering uh, when I was reading this. I was like, are we ever going to get to Superman? But yes, we are. Uh, halfway through the story, but we're going to get to Superman. He's turned. Clark has uh, changed into Superman. He jumps over the wall. He sees the glass embedded in there. It's like, oh, wonderful. Uh, and Black Satan, he's back. He attempts to uh, jump onto Superman and bite him, but obviously that doesn't work. And then Superman goes and puts uh, Black Satan into a tree, like on a tree branch. So he can't, you know, if he jumps down, he'll hurt himself. So he's just like clinging to the tree really sad, which makes me feel bad for Black Satan, which, I mean, you should. Dogs are... You know, they, they can't help it if they're trained a certain way by bad owners to do bad things. Dogs are innocent. Dogs are innocent. So uh, Superman goes in through a basement window and finds Lois in, a, in an unenviable fix, he says. Which, yeah, I don't envy people that are in prison. Uh, and he kind of makes fun of her. He says, I don't know, maybe I should leave you in there to force some sense into your head. And she's like, oh, stop clowning, Superman. I love you. Uh, she doesn't say I love you, but she's thinking it. Uh, so he busts the bars open, and then he busts Davy out of the locker. He says, get out of here. Get out of there, nerd. Just kidding. He doesn't say that because he's Superman, but nerds get put in lockers. 
And so Superman says, okay, I'm going to rip these gates down. So he rips the gates down. And he says, okay, you guys go. You go to the Daily Planet and get your story into print. I'm returning to the home to settle things with Tweed. With the Tweeds. And Lois is, of course, like, oh, let me come with you. And it's like, well, no, Lois, you just got into a bad situation. I'm not bringing you back in there. So uh, Lois is like, fine, I'll go. But she's not. Spoiler alert, she doesn't go. Uh, Superman goes back through another basement window. It's a different basement. Uh, and we, he sees Mr. Tweed with, a, for whatever reason, he's got a fire poker and maybe like a bundle of papers. I don't know if he's burning evidence or something. It's not stated. Uh, and he tries to hit Superman with the, uh, you know, red hot poker. Like the end is red hot. If you've ever like used a fire poker and left it in the fire for a long time, especially down in the embers, it starts glowing red like you're a blacksmith. He attempts to hit Superman with that. Uh, but Superman puts it in his mouth and bites the tip off of it. And he says, mm-hmm, tasty little snack. I don't believe you, Superman. There's no way that hot metal tastes good. Which I know that's like a, it's, you're doing psychological warfare on Mr. Tweed, but still. And he says, heat it some more. I like my meals hotter than that. Which, fair. I don't, I don't like eating cold food. So, uh, Mr. Tweed, I guess, pulls a board out and looses a bunch of loose boards on top of Superman. I don't know why he has a bunch of loose boards up in his ceiling of his basement, but he does. Uh, but Superman busts through them all really easily. But Tweed has gotten away up the stairs. Superman goes up the stairs in one leap, uh, but Mr. Tweed, who, for whatever reason, it's the middle of the night. Let's remember this. It is the middle of the night. Mrs. Tweed was sleeping. Mr. Tweed was, I'm assuming, also sleeping, but maybe he's just up being a weirdo in the middle of the night because he's being a weirdo. He had a boiling kettle of water from the kitchen sink. So did he just boil it? He was making some tea, and he was going to make tea, but then he had to go into the basement and play with a fire poker? And it's still boiling? Okay. He throws the boiling water at Superman, and he tells him to scald. Superman, of course, doesn't. Uh, then Tweed runs into the kitchen and st- starts throwing knives. Oh, I see, a, I see a, a cleaver. I see a paring knife. I see what looks like to me maybe a, a, like a, a carving knife of some kind thrown at Superman. Of course, doesn't do anything. Tweed pulls a gun out of the kitchen drawer and shoots Superman and then tries to shoot him again. But Superman does uh, a marble shoot, which, you know, if you've—no uh, one plays marbles anymore. It's a very old game. But to play marbles, you kind of nestle a marble in your curled-up uh, fingers, and then you, like, flick your thumb, like, like a reverse. Like, you're not flicking a lighter. You're going the other way. So you're going out, and you— shoot a marble that way so superman uses the bullet that was shot at him to hit the other bullet out of the air and he says haven't lost my skill at shooting marbles uh that's what people did before uh video games existed so so now this is the part where this gets weird all right presumably this is a rehabilitation home for boys uh or maybe also girls it's not ever mentioned but i just assume it's for boys because it's 1940 and girls don't get anything cool uh, although this rehabilitation home isn't very cool. So, Tweed opens up a door and then shan- uh, slams it shut. And it's like a steel door. And then slams it shut and locks it. Superman busts through it very easily. Then, Tweed pulls a lever and a anvil on a chain suspended from the ceiling swings down and hits Superman in the face. And Superman says, oh, thanks for picking my teeth. 
then uh, Superman runs towards Tweed, and Tweed pulls a switch, and it says two great shears snap together and smash into the fragments upon Superman's body. Okay, so I I I suppose you can make an argument for why the anvil was suspended from the ceiling with chains. I don't I can't make one, but maybe someone can. But what is the argument from having comically large shears in a rehabilitation home for boys? Like I get there's a workshop and stuff, but these are he said it says two giant shears. So basically a giant pair of scissors on a switch that can just come down where people walk. What is the this is not a this is not a mad scientist lab. This is a rehabilitation home for boys of ran by two Presumably, regular intelligence, average human beings. Why does he have giant shears? But wait, it gets weirder. Uh, But we'll get back to that. Lois, of course, doesn't listen. She comes back. She doesn't go to the Daily Planet. Davey goes to the Daily Planet. I don't know what he's going to do there. He's not a a reporter. Uh, But she sneaks back in with her skeleton key again. And uh, again, just doesn't pay attention to her surroundings. She's like, oh, nice. I found their bank book. Here we go. When Mrs. Tweed comes up behind her, hits her in the head with a vase, okay? It's like, Lois, pay attention. You are you are breaking and entering into someone's house. Pay attention to your surroundings. Okay, so back to Superman. It said, this is the caption. I'm going to read it verbatim. Meanwhile, as Superman is about to seize Tweed, the grafter spills molten metal on the floor and lights smashed gas lines. So A, why are the gas lines smashed? And B, why does he have molten metal? It's the middle of the night. Why do you have molten metal just sitting around? What is this place? What is this weird funhouse of horrors? Superman, uh, you know, beats back the flames with his hands and then repairs the uh, pipes with, uh, with, with his brute strength, I guess. He just, like, pushes them together. Uh, Tweed has had time to escape in this time, um, because also in the in the story with the orphanage, a fire also started in that. So Tweed goes back to his wife, and they have Lois, and and they, they she found her sneaking again, and uh, Tweed says, "Never mind, bring her into the workshop." Okay, so where were you before? You weren't in the workshop previously. That's not where the molten metal is, or the giant shears, or the anvil hanging from the sky or from the ceiling. So they bring her into the workshop, and they place her on the bandsaw. Bandsaw? No. What is that called? Circulating saw. Table. Very um, old-timey villain, twirling his mustache, uh, Dick Dastardly sort of situation. Uh, and she, and he's going to turn it on if, if Superman comes any closer, because Superman has burst into the workshop at this point. And uh, Tweed, is he feels like he's won because, you know, if Superman does anything, he's going to turn it on and cut Lois down the middle uh, head first. Luckily, she'll die quickly, I guess. But because the other way would be more painful. Um, but Superman uh, puts his hand in between Lois and the blade and breaks the blade, obviously, uh, and snaps Lois's bonds. And then... Uh, Tweed just has a master switch to turn all the machines on at once. All the, the machines in this workshop on at once. Why would you have that switch? What would be the point of turning them all on at once? 
but he does it. And the motors start racing at top speed. And so he leaves and says, run for your life. Well, I don't know which, why, why that would matter. Why do you have to run for your life? Other than Superman. Maybe he'll kill you. But I guess these machines running at full speed causes them all to explode. And so pieces of metal are flying around. So Superman has to protect Lois. And uh, I guess to stop the machines from running anymore, even though presumably they've exploded, he puts his finger in a light socket and shorts out the power in the building uh, blows a fuse and and then uh he chases after the tweeds who have gotten into an elevator uh why does this why does this house have an elevator i don't know they've made a lot of money from swindling children uh they're going up which is not the way to escape unless unless they're going up to the ground floor if we're in the basement and they're going to escape out the at the doors like normal people but Superman grabs the cord, the cable, which is attached to the elevator, and pulls them back down, grabs the, the ledgers that they had grabbed to escape with, their evidence, their dastardly deeds, and throws them at Lois. Doesn't hit her, just throws them at her feet. And then he takes the elevator and goes up through the roof of the building and then takes them to a police station, tells them to confess like normal. They do it, obviously. And later, presumably the next day, uh, uh, Clark says, congratulations on your scoop, Lois. And Lois says, not my scoop, Clark. After all, it was your suspicions that got us onto the right trail. Which is nice, because normally Lois is like, yeah, that's right, I did it. All by myself. And then uh, the Clark uh, does an interview with the new head of the Brentwood Rehabilitation Home. It's uh, a nameless guy who's just referred to as the superintendent. He apparently knows Clark, who pulled some strings to get him the job. And uh, Clark says this home was a good idea. It's too bad the tweets turned it into a, a selfish racket. And that's the end of uh, Superman story in Action Comics number 27. It was interesting. Kind of leaps of, in, of logic of what would be in uh, a rehabilitation home for boys. Also, what are they rebuild, re- rehabilitating from? I don't know, and it's never explained. So, but we know we shouldn't be asking such questions. It's you know, it's not it's not the the uh, writer's job to explain things to us. We're just supposed to look at the pictures and enjoy Superman punching people. So, let's do that. But not anymore. Let's move on to Zatara. And as usual, Zatara disappoints me in its lack of coherence and uh, inability to not be, like, a little bit racist. Uh, So this is Zatara, the Master Magician, and the Vanished Explorer. So it all focuses on the search for Raoul de Armand, uh, the famous French explorer. He doesn't speak French once in this gosh dang issue. Has been lost in the wilds of equatorial Africa near the lakes of Lake Tanganyika, which I have looked up Tanganyika territory, and it is basically what Tanzania is now. It was a territory that was under the uh, administration by the United Kingdom from 1916 to 1961, so it would be smack dab in the middle of its tenure as a as a colony. And specifically, Lake Tanganyika is a thing still uh, in it is the basically the entire western border of Tanzania and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. It's a very it's a thin 
I mean, not super thin. It's 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 relatively thick, but it is the entire border between those two countries. Uh, and Burundi. Burundi's in there as well. Uh, so that's a real lake. Uh, it's a real place. But uh, basically nothing else about this story is factual or even right, even close to right. Uh, just a real misunderstanding of basically everything in this uh, story. So basically uh, Zatara is talking to some guy at the Adventurers Club in New York. He hangs out there a lot. And Zatara wants to go look for De Armand uh, so that the world can benefit from his knowledge. So uh, Tong is in this one. I'm not going to say anything that Tong says because I am just sick of the way that he is written uh, with his lines. It makes me feel dumber and like a bad person for reading them out loud. So I'm not going to read them out loud. Just know that Tong... Although he's had, you know, he's been interacting with people who speak English for years, probably at this point. Uh, he's from India, where Britain has had a, a, a hold on the country for decades. He still speaks terrible, broken English, uh, and that is that is. I'm just not going to read it because it's a terrible depiction of Indian people. Especially because in this issue, we meet other people who have had less interaction with English-speaking people, and they speak more fluent English than Tong. It is a disrespect to Tong as a character, as the partner of Zatara, and I just don't, I'm just not going to do it. So there. So there. So Zatara and Tong, they pack up a suitcase uh, or a trunk, and they go to the docks to take a boat to Africa. When a man pulls a gun, on Zatara. Zatara uses his magic to turn the gun into a balloon and tells the man that he has to tell him, you know, what he wants to know and he'll save him from the balloon, like, you know, bringing him up into the sky. So Zatara does that. And the guy explains that some guy, doesn't say who, overheard Zatara talking about saving Raul to Armand uh, from the jungles of Tanzania, basically. And... Uh, that he was paid, this guy, this guy that Zatara is talking to, to shoot Zatara so that he doesn't, you know, succeed. So Zatara lets the guy go, and they get on the boat. And so they're, you know, thinking, hmm, it's weird. Uh, but obviously then they spend uh, like a couple days, a few days, maybe a week on the boat. I don't know how long it takes boats to go across the ocean at this point in time. I don't know how they, I don't know how long they take to go across the ocean now. I've never traveled across the ocean on boats, or I guess it's a ship on ships but they eventually get to cairo now if you know anything about the continent of africa cairo is the capital city of egypt it is you know very much a northern city it's one of the most populous cities uh, in the northern part of africa i believe and tanzania is down on the more narrow part of africa you know by by the Democratic Republic of Congo, by Kenya, by Madagascar. It's like you can see Madagascar from, I mean, you probably can't see it, but you can travel from Tanzania to Madagascar very easily. So it's down there. It's it's not, it's below the equator. It takes, on foot, 84 days to get from Cairo to Tanzania. They're going on foot. They're not, they're, because we see silhouettes uh, of of men walking camels, and we see a pyramid because we're in Egypt, and so they are walking to or traveling by foot, either animal foot or human foot, to Tanzania. 
So that's going to take 84 days. So, uh, which I guess once we get to the end, the timeline kind of makes sense a little bit, as much as it can. But still, that's a long trip. Uh, Zatara has the ability to fly. I don't know why he's doing this. But we see two men, two white men, uh, talking amongst themselves, following Zatara. Not a part of his group. They're following him separately. And these are the two men, uh, the one in specifically, I don't know if he ever gets, to if he has a name. Uh, no, I don't, he doesn't really get a name. The guy who is in charge, uh, Shrimp, his sidekick gets a name, Shrimp. But uh, the guy in charge doesn't get a name. But he's the, he's a, uh, he's the only man who's, uh, Darmond is the only man whose fame is greater than this guy as a biologist. Um, and so they're trying to make sure that he's dead so that this guy can get his job that pays big money. So you're the number two, so it's only one biologist job that pays big money. I don't believe you. In 1940, they were obsessed with bad science that biologists did by traveling through the jungle. So they're going to follow Zatara, so he finds D'Armand, and then they're going to kill them both. Simple as. Uh, so they do that. Uh, far ahead of them, though, Zatara and Tong and their, you know, escort have stopped. They're going to make camp. Uh, there's a very funny picture of Zatara's and Tong's feet sticking out of their tent, which is, it's, and their, their hats are kind of sitting on poles on one end. So, uh, then their, uh, the, uh, strange figures move about the camp and we see that it's, um, native Africans, who are going through the camp and stealing everything. Um, so I'm going to read what they say. And it, it, just think of how Tong talks. Um, I'll do a comparison. So uh, one of them says, We get rich haul here. Guns, food, blankets, beads. And the other one says, Let us go while he sleeps. Tiz said he be a great magician. Sorry, Tiz? All right, cool. Um, and then obviously Tong the next men's the next morning says master master all men gone okay just just really and uh, as the as the thieves run away they say hurry it is nearly dawn okay so why can't Tong talk like that why do we have to make him speak this broken English and and make him seem dumb <sighs> okay we see Zatari's in his underwear it's funny uh, we laugh at him when he's in his underwear so they're going to get the stuff back they're going to uh teach these thieves a lesson uh so zatara goes into spirit form and finds the thieves and makes the stuff that they've stolen talk to them and uh then then the stuff flies off uh to back to zatara so uh, then him and tong are walking through the desert uh or the jungle one of the two it's like half jungle half desert they've gotten through the Sahara, i guess and their stuff is all floating behind them. Which, they have multiple guns. Which, Zatar doesn't use guns, so I don't know why he paid for guns. Um, we see the guy in charge, who we don't know his name, um, talking to um, an Arab man. Uh, and he's he's hiring him to kill Zatara. So, of course, the Arab man then says, Allah Akbar, which means Allah is the greatest. Uh, the unbeliever shall die. It's like, you don't know Zatara's religion. He could worship Allah. He could be, he could, he could practice Islam. You don't know that. Uh, so Zatara and Tong are continuing to track their way through the forest. He uses magic to make the trees and the bushes bend out of his way. It's 
pretty good. Uh, the the group of, of Arab warriors and the two white dudes are following along. Um, and Zatara and Tong get to this large plateau in the middle of the jungle. They float up to the top and they see a tower, a lone tower sitting on top of this plateau. Tong goes to investigate when a strange figure uh, comes out the top of it and throws a club down and hits Tong in the head. Oh, I should say, I didn't say at the beginning. I didn't, but it's very important at, the, at this point. Raul de Armand was looking for the missing link in, or maybe I did say it. He's, he's looking for the missing link here in Africa, which if you don't know, the missing link is the hypothesized or theorized uh, final common ancestor between us and apes. Uh, so before this time, apes and human beings were on the same evolutionary line. But after this, quote unquote, missing link, common ancestor, it broke off into uh, two separate lines and then, you know, broke off into lines other than that, uh, like with Neanderthals and us homo, homo sapiens. And then basically every other type of ape in the world has broken off from the ape side. So this missing link is the hypothesized common ancestor of, of us and apes. So while Tong is getting hit in the head by this club, uh, Zatara has found some tracks. And he's like, oh, what footprints? They, they look like the prints of the missing link that Raul de Armand was looking for. Oh, Tong. So you know what the prints of the missing link look like. Fair. You, they find footprints in, fossil, in the fossil record all the time, archaeologists do. But the, he didn't dig for these. They're on the surface, which means that the quote-unquote missing link is just walking around, which that's not how it works. That's thousands and thousands of years ago. Like, they're not still alive. If they were, they would have been found by now. They're not just... They don't have Wakanda technology to, to keep themselves hidden. They are not alive anymore. So uh, Zatara remembers that he has a partner, uh, Tong, and rushes back to the tower. And he's like, oh, where is Tong? Oh, he's gone. Uh, uh, we, we see the, the Arab warriors and the white dudes, and they've come to the plateau as well. They're going to have to climb it, though, because they can't fly. And Tong wakes up, and he is uh, sitting on the ground. And standing in front of him is a, a humanoid man, but also a very ape-like man. Spoiler alert, this is... This is the missing link, a, one of a missing link, the, the species. So the missing link guy, uh, which they call them link men. Uh, okay, uh, he wants to fight Tong. And Tong's like, Tong's a very good fighter. He's a very strong dude. So he's like, okay, yeah, I'm going to slap you silly. Uh, but the, the guy obviously has a club. So he hits Tong before he can really even get himself ready. He hits him right in the head knocks him out and starts to carry him towards this stone fortress that is on this plateau i guess too it's a really big plateau and it's all there's lots of grass too which a i don't think of plateaus as being in the jungles of africa and b i don't typically think of them as having, having grass on top but i'm not a geologist or a geographer a physical geographer so maybe i maybe i'm dumb so zatara goes to look for Tong in spirit form, and he finds this this fortress, and he says, an entire city of, quote-unquote, missing links. What a find for science. But what do they point at? 
And I don't know what they're pointing at. We don't even see them pointing. I don't know what he's talking about. He then sees this missing link carrying Tong. He turns Tong into mist and grabs Tong's mist form with his spirit form, which typically can't touch things, and, you know, brings him away. Uh, so they have to search the city uh, to, to find D'Armand, because he's got to be here, because why else would he? He was looking for the missing link, so he must have found him. So they, you know, come down in the middle of the city where, you know, they're not spotted by any missing link men. And then the most buck wild, well, maybe not the most buck wild, uh, an entire race of, of a species that has been around for thousands and thousands of years. Like, let me just, let me just do a quick Google search and I'll be right back. Okay, I'm back. I did a Google search on when the last common ancestor, the missing link between humans and apes is. And it is between eight and six million years ago. Okay, so these missing links have not only been hiding in Africa with other homo sapiens around, with homo sapiens around them all the time for eight to six million years ago, and they've also haven't evolved at all. Okay, that's not how it works, but okay. Um, but the, now back to the most buckwild thing. Zatara and... Tong go through these doors because they hear a woman crying because obviously this missing link society must have women because otherwise they would have died out because you need I, I doubt that the missing link are like oh yeah we, we reproduce by mitosis we just split off and make new uh, of ourselves so there's a, a female missing link hide, uh, crying behind these doors, and they open up the doors. And I'm going to post pictures of what the missing link looked like, and then I'm going to post a picture of what this woman looks like. Because guess what she looks like? That's right, a white blonde lady. Just not, not, not simian at all, not looking anything like any kind of ape. She just looks like a, a 1940s blonde white woman. She's wearing clothes. Like she's wearing a, a looks like a leopard print like halter top or like one 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 strap shirt and then like white shorts but the all the uh missing link dudes they're just wearing loincloths so just again just uh, terrible stuff from from when when gardener fox and uh fred gardener get together they make the worst stuff possible um and she's crying because her name is kara Leader of the Linkmen. She's well. It's a you know. It's a matriarchal society. That's cool. I'm I'm all for that. Uh, but she is to sacrifice a white man like you, whom I have learned to love. And he's like, oh, this must be Raoul de Armand. And she's like, oh, you know him. My people took him captive months ago. He taught me English in a couple months. And and guess how guess how well she speaks. I'm reading it verbatim. Taught me English, and I tried to help him escape, but. That's how good she speaks in two months. But Tong has to speak in broken English? All right. I know I've gotten on the Tong soapbox a lot. It just makes me really, really angry every time I have to read anything that he says. So, uh, so Zatara says, but the eight men wouldn't let you. Perhaps I can make them see differently. So they go to where Raul de Armand is being held. He's chained to a wall. He says, ah, Zatara the magician, thank heaven you found me. And Zatara's like, yeah, the whole world's looking for you or wondering where you went. And uh, Kara says, oh, they won't let him go. My link, man. My link. If you're the leader, just say, the, say let him go. You're in charge. So they have to sacrifice him to the sun. So they worship the sun, which is fair. A lot of, lot of societies do. 
A lot of cultures do worship the sun in, in one form or another. So Zatara has a plan to get uh, Raul out of here. Uh, meanwhile, the, the Arab warriors and the white dudes have climbed the plateau. And they're uh, coming to... They found, they found the city of the missing links. So he says, uh, the, the leader of the, Arab, of the Arab guys says, There lies the place where the lost man is. I have heard rumors of such a city. And the white dude says, what makes you so sure this is the place? And uh, the Arab guy says, for miles around, I am chief of this jungle country. If our man had died or gone, any, gone elsewhere, I would know. This is the only place he can possibly be. Okay, then why didn't, why didn't you just head there immediately? It's like, oh, I know where he's at because it's the only place that he could possibly be because he's not anywhere else. But okay. And you just you heard rumors of the city, but you never investigated. If if you know every other part of this country, you're just like, eh, that part I don't need to know about it. That part I can re- keep a secret. So they you know they pull out their guns and they're gonna creep up on the fortress or the city or whatever. So we cut to Kara and she is uh, calling a council of eight men and, and they're all dudes. It's only her. She's the only female that we've ever seen in this entire story. She says that she is, today at the noon hour, I shall sacrifice the stranger if the sun god wills. So they strap him to a table. And Zatara and Tong have a plan. They're up on top of the parapet uh, of the fortress. When the, the Arab warriors find them, spot them on there, shoot Zatara in the arm. Okay, he gets shot in the arm. Tong carries him back down inside of the fortress. And they see, I don't know why they were doing, I don't know what they were doing up on top because... Zatara doesn't do anything until he gets down here in the in the sacrifice room. So uh, Zatara gets down there, and they are using a large magnifying glass, like a huge magnifying glass, which also leads me to ask, so these missing link dudes, they, I guess, speak some sort of language, even though Zatara can understand them, and everybody can understand them, so they must be able to speak English too. Again, they also speak better English than Tong. But and they can make giant magnifying glass, which is not an easy feat. Like that, uh, glass blowing is difficult, and magnifying glasses are also very, very difficult to get the you know concave or convex, whichever one, to, to the right sort of shape so that you can magnify things. That they made a giant one, but they still have primitive technology everywhere else. Okay, they don't, they don't even have they don't even have iron. They don't have iron. They don't have bronze. They don't have they don't have steel. They have stone clubs, but they have a giant magnifying glass. Okay. Zatara turns the sun off. He says, "Sun, stop thy rays." So he stops the sun. OP. Zatara's OP. Uh, and he turns the entire room pitch black. Uh, black as tar, he says. And when the sun comes back again, Kara and Raul and Zatara and Tong have all made their escape. So they're running. Uh, outside the city, this group of Arab fighters has surrounded the fortress. That's a lot of dudes. I didn't know they had that many with them. And so when Zatara and Raul and Kara and Tong try to leave, they're surrounded on one side by the, the Arab fighters and on the other side, the link men, which are coming. So Zatara uses magic to make the uh, Arab fighters run backwards. Uh, and then he turns the uh, link men into stone, which is a standard practice for him. Uh, this, uh, at this point in time, the, the link men have grabbed Raul, and they're going to kill him. 
but Zatara turns them to stone, so they look like marble statues, it says. So Raul's very happy with him. He's like, oh, thanks, and let me let me tend to your bullet wound. And, and Zatara's like, well, you'll need medicine for that. And he says, you know, magically, here's medicine. Why wouldn't he just magically cure his bullet wound? Hmm. Interesting. So he gets medicine, and Raul, who is a biologist, but I guess also is knows medicine, which, I mean, is fair, I guess, but okay. Um, so Zatara, you know, gets wrapped up. The Arab fighters uh, return to the nameless white dude and shrimp, and they they um, they say, the magician Zatara is too much for us. He could have killed, but spared. I shall not spare you. And so they shoot shrimp and the nameless leader. I don't know why he doesn't get a name. It's just so weird. Uh, and then we cut to two weeks later, and Zatara is as well as ever. He's healed from his gunshot wound, and he is congratulating Kara and Raul on their marriage. So, um, Kara says, thank you, but if it hadn't been for you, we would both be dead now, for I would never have let Raul be killed without losing my life defending him. And that's the end. I, I know I'm not supposed to hate things, and I know that these are a product of their time, but I don't know why. Zatara's stories are so always just so so bad they're so out there there's very little logic in any of them and I know it's magic but magic can have logic they just they are a a slog to read because it's just just nonsensical thing after nonsensical thing and then there's the weird like racism that's in there like why is she a white woman like why is why are the, why is it all ape dudes and then a blonde white woman in the middle of Africa. Doesn't make any sense. I'm sorry. I got very angry there. It's just Zatara's stories. I freaking hate reading them. I'll just be honest. I, I read them because they're they're important to the process. And they 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 form a foundation for Zatanna later. But gosh, if they are not a slog to read. But uh enough about that. Let's get on to some like better stories. Um uh, let's talk about More Fun Comics number 58. Released July 2nd, 1940, with a cover date of August 1940. We've got The Spectre, we've got Dr. Fate, which is written by Gardner F. Fox, but I guess when he's paired with Howard Sherman, he's not a, a weirdo uh, with like racial undertones. So yeah, we got The Spectre, written by Jerry Siegel, and drawn by Bernard Bailey, and we've got Dr. Fate, written by Gardner F. Fox, and drawn by Howard Sherman. So let's get into it. So this Spectre story in More Fun Comics 58 starts out with a shootout between police and uh, some sort of gangster in a, in a where in like an empty building. Uh, and the the it's a real standoff because the anytime a police officer tries to get close, the gangster shoots at him and they can't seem to hit him and so Jim Corrigan's on the scene uh, even though he's a detective, I don't know why he's there, but he releases the Spectre Spectre goes inside the how uh, the building because he can just go wherever he wants and comes up behind the guy, surprises him. The guy shoots at the Spectre. The Spectre pretends to be shot. And then the guy grabs the Spectre's body and throws him out the window. And once the Spectre hits the ground, he just basically bounces right back up through the window, scaring uh, the guy again. The guy grabs a rifle and tries to hit the Spectre with it like a club. Uh, it goes right through him because he's a ghost. Uh, so the guy runs 
throughout this building, slamming doors behind him, locking them. The specter just continues to open them and follow him, and eventually he runs out of the building and directly into p- uh, police custody because he he wants uh, them to handcuff him, put him in prison, take him away from this place. It's haunted. They're, of course, confused, but they're like, sure, we'll arrest you. You've done crimes. So Jim Corrigan rides in the police van, police truck, with this gangster and tries to get him to tell him where his partner is. This is the first we're hearing of a partner, but he has a partner, apparently. So the, the guy says, oh, Pete, I don't know. But Jim, using his specter powers, reads this guy's mind. Oh, his name is Nick, which is, again, slander against me uh, because my name is Nick. Uh, and And... In Nick's mind, he says, if they knew Pete was at the Brent warehouse. And Jim's like thinking, thanks, Nick, you dumb idiot. That's exactly what I wanted to know. So Jim releases the Spectre again. And as he's flying away from the truck, he's saying, now to find a guy named Pete. Well, that shouldn't be that difficult. Peter's a very, very popular name with its Christian connection. And the vast majority of Christians that live in the United States shouldn't be that hard to find a guy named Pete. So... The Spectre flies across the city in, in the form of a blazing comet and lands at the Brent warehouse. He shrinks down and goes underneath the door. He could just walk right through it, but he's like, this is fun. And he says, what burglar wouldn't give to do this? Uh, inside the Brent warehouse, he sees a man tied to a post and Pete about to set the place on fire. Pete has a, like a match in his hand, but the Spectre turns the fire on the match into ice. And in the reflection of the ice, it's a big flame. I don't think that matches typically get that big, but it is a big enough piece of ice from the fire to see the reflection of the specter in it. And uh, Pete is terrified, of course. And uh, as, as is often the case when bad people look into the specter's eyes, he is instantly killed, but he is melted this time because he is consumed by the villainy within him. The specter frees the man, and asks him his name, and his name is Bob Brent, the owner of this warehouse. He doesn't know why he was brought here, but Pete said someone hired him. And uh, Bob Brent asks the Spectre who he is, and he says, oh, just think of me as a guardian angel. You better go home now. And uh, Bob Brent gets into his car or Pete's car or something and drives away. The Spectre, having a hunch that Bob Brent is going to need him, follows and as Brent turns onto a narrow one-way street, a out-of-control truck is coming the, uh, the other direction. Illegally, obviously, because it's a one-way street. The Spectre lifts the car over the truck, stopping the car from being crushed. Now, there's a page missing from the copy of this that I am using. And uh, all the copies seem to be missing this page. Uh, so... Bob Brent, I I know from reading a synopsis of this issue, arrives home and uh, asks for some food from his butler because he's a wealthy man. And the butler poisons Bob Brent, but the specter stops him every time. And we see on the page 7, we're missing page 6, we just have a duplicate of page 7. Uh, he doesn't understand. He gives, he's given him enough poison to kill a dozen men, and he wants more. And the specter appears in front of the butler, who is also a bald guy, and says, and why not? And so the specter, uh, you know, scares this guy. And he's like, oh, good heavens. And the specter grabs him and says, frightened, but not frightened enough to tell me who ordered 
you you to kill Brent. And the butler's like, no, I won't tell. And the inspector says, oh, yes, you will. Or you will die. Would you like that, James? And he says, look into my eyes. Look deep. And uh, James says, no, no, don't let me look. I'll tell you anything. And before you can tell him anything, the phone rings. And the specter orders him to answer it. And he does, and he says it's for Bob Brent. And so the specter, or so James calls him, and Bob Brent picks up the phone. And somehow James gets away from the specter. Like from one panel, he's standing right next to the specter, and the next panel, he is behind a curtain, behind Bob Brent, and he's going to shoot him. So I don't know how he got away from the specter, but I guess he did. Um, but on the phone, Bob Brent is talking to Morris, his partner, that uh, he wants he wants to see him at the warehouse, but he's like just there, so it's weird. It's important apparently. Uh, so Bob Brent's going to be there as soon as possible. So James is about to shoot him with a gun when the Spectre, I guess, shows up again after leaving James alone and tells him to stop. And James says, oh, you're too late. I'm going to riddle him with bullets. Uh, but not, no, you're not. Because the Spectre makes him explode silently into nothingness. Spectre is hardcore and he's merciless. He's God's vengeance. The Spectre then... Rides along, invisibly, with Bob Brent back to the warehouse. Like, if I was Bob Brent, I'd be like, I'm not going to go back to the warehouse in the middle of the night. Stuff is weird. I know that someone was hired, like, uh, Pete was hired to kill me. So I'm clearly not safe. So he goes to the warehouse, and he meets up with Morris. And Morris pulls a gun on him. He's going to kill him. And the reason is that Morris has taken too much money from the firm. What business are they in? Who knows? Warehousery. They're in warehousery. They're a warehouse firm. He's taking too much money from them. So he was going to, uh, so Brent was going to find out. And he's going to kill him, so there's no evidence. Like, no one, no one else is, you know, above him at the company. So no one will find out that he's stolen all this money. I guess they also won't find out that he kills Brent. Uh, which I guess the method that he's using uh, is, is, is pretty good to not, you know, leave any evidence, but it's revealed that Morris, of course, is the person that hired all those gangsters, and I guess James, the butler, to kill Bob Brent, so, uh, he ties Bob Brent up, Morris does, and sets a bomb for five minutes, it's going to explode, and it's going to burn down the warehouse, and, uh, obviously kill Bob Brent, but not if the Spectre has anything to, uh, say about it. The Spectre appears upside down, and it's not explained why. He's just, he's just having a little bit of fun. He's just floating upside down. His feet are sticking straight up in the, in the air. His legs are. And he says, just a minute. And the Spectre is now walking on the wall. Says, I'll be with you in a moment. And, and then he, he confronts Morris. And Morris is like, keep away. What manner of creature are you? And the Spectre says, I'm your sins, Morris. And I finally caught up with you. And then there's a part of this, this, this story right here that is, it's adding an artificial roadblock to the specter because the specter is very, very powerful. So dealing with mere human beings, as we've seen, he just, he, they're playthings. So there is an unexplained roadblock because at that instant, in a puff of smoke, the specter vanishes. Morris runs away. The bomb is set. Things are going to go bad for Brent. Because unexpectedly, the spirit find, the specter finds himself floating through deepest black space. And the specter says, some cosmic occurrence sending me back to the spirit world. It's not explained what. There's nothing. All he has to do is try really, really hard to concentrate. And he goes back to the, to the human world. 
So it's like, it was just an artificial, like, oh, we got to find something to fill up these three panels. Well, let's make him disappear. Should we explain it? No, let's not explain it. Let's keep it a mystery. And you know what? If I, if I, if I know Golden Age comics, they will never mention it again. It'll just be like, it just happened. It's, you know, it's whatever. So the Spectre reappears by Brent. He unties Brent, and they run from the building a moment before it explodes. And um, the Spectre lands on the ground, and Morris has gotten into his car and is going to run the Spectre over. But the Spectre grabs the car and just basically throws it into space. And in the final panel, Brent wants to reward the Spectre, but the Spectre says, oh, I don't need a reward. My only desire is to see justice done. Goodbye. So, <clears throat> it's a fine story, the Spectre story. I, I prefer it when the Spectre... I, pre- I prefer it when the magic users and the people that are powerful deal with people of comparative either ability, intelligence, power... I don't, I don't enjoy it when people like the Spectre or Superman or Zatara or Green Lantern, for that matter, now deal with just regular people because they walk all over them and there's no challenge, like, at all. There's not even any suspense. So, uh, so yeah, let's move on to, to Dr. Fate. Uh, and I have to apologize. I was wrong. We do have a debut in the Dr. Fate uh, story. And no, it's not Dr. Fate's identity. We don't learn about Kent Nelson for a while, I believe. Uh, when was Kent Nelson debuted as... He debuts... We will learn about Kent Nelson in about nine issues in uh, More Fun Comics number 67. Uh, so we'll learn about Kent Nelson then. And it'll be it'll be a while. It'll be a while. Uh, but we learn, we see the debut of Dr. Fate's Tower, the doorless tower that is situated in Salem, Massachusetts, a place where witchcraft was said to have happened. But if you know anything about Massachusetts history or the history of Salem, it was all just hysteria and stories made up by uh, teenage girls. So, so there's no actual witchcraft that ever took place, just the burning of innocent women. And uh, so that's uncool. So we find Dr. Fate in his tower. It's very exciting. I'm exciting. It's exciting to, to learn more stuff or have stuff debut in, uh, in these comics. He is reading in his Encyclopedia Magica, which is what I'm calling it, uh, about the Book of Thoth, the Lost Book of Thoth, uh, which is a book, uh, the lost magic that was destroyed when Atlantis sank into the ocean. This is before Aquaman. So Atlantis is still just this mythical place that you know sank into the ocean they don't know anything about it and it's and this book is supposed to be guarded by an immortal snake and uh, dr fate you know not having anything planned for the afternoon says oh you know what i'm gonna go check it out the book is in the middle of the koptos river which koptos is a, an ancient settlement which is now the modern day settlement of kift q-i-f-t in egypt uh which so two two Stories this time with real places in them, which is cool. Uh, so Dr. Fate flies to the uh, Koptos River, which is just the Nile River. It's just the portion of the river that's by Koptos or Kift at this point. And he dives into the river to the bottom and finds the, the container where the Book of Thoth is supposed to have been stored. 
But it's not there anymore. And the immortal snake guardian it has been killed. So someone has taken this book. So Dr. Fate is on the mission. He flies to, I'm assuming New York. I don't know if it's been said where Inza lives. But he flies to Inza's penthouse. But as he gets there, it, f- it rips off of the building it's on and starts to fall towards the ground. Uh, Fate grabs Inza off of her balcony and then turns the penthouse into dust so that it doesn't hurt any of the people below. Although that much dust would still be bad for people. So uh, Inza and Dr. Fate fly off. Um, she says that before the penthouse fell off the or like broke loose, she heard a man or a great voice shouting an old Egyptian. And Dr. Fate's like, ah, so that was the man who stole the Book of Thoth. They go back to Dr. Fate's tower, and he uses some divination magic to find the the man who stole the Book of Thoth, and he finds him. And he is, of course, dressed in sort of ancient Egyptian garb, even though he's just like a regular dude in modern times. And he lives on the the cliffs of Dover in Devon, England, the the white ones. And it's like, okay, to England we go. Okay, now the first part of the evil guy's plan starts. All these wealthy people in England take all of their money out of their safes and out of the bank, and they put them in the bags, and they bring them to this cottage on top of the cliffs of Dover. And they leave it there. They're hypnotized. They don't know why they're doing it. They're just doing it. Okay? So that's the first part. The first part of that plan makes no sense once we get to the second part of the plan. Just like it's very reminiscent of Wotan and his plan. So this dude has gotten all this money from these rich people. Then he walks out of his cottage, just past all the bags of money. He's going to pick it up later. And he goes and starts chanting a, a spell on the cliffs. He's like, Armalo, non ditmin, sed terdalig. And the, the trees bend low as if listening. And the, and the denizens of the deep come to the surface to listen to the spell. And magic blows around this man. And he, he flies. He begins to levitate up into the air as he is saying, Baranath, Neeg, Dialoth, Dialgoth. Which, the Book of Thoth already makes me think of H.P. Lovecraft. Like Lovecraftian Cthulhu language. Because there's like Yogg-Sothoth is, is uh, one of the... Uh, the undying ones, um, the one of the the endless uh, nether or what are they called? It's been a while since I've read Lovecraftian stuff, um, and it, and Doctor Fate reveals that this spell is the destruction of the world. So this chant, this spell from this Atlantis magic, is going to destroy the world. So then, why did he? Do a spell to hypnotize all those rich people to bring him his money. Because the money's like money is a construct, a human construct. If the world is destroyed, money has no value. Nothing has any value. The world is destroyed, including you, dude. Like the people who want to destroy the world, it's like you live on the world. What are you doing? Okay. So Dr. Fate uh, flies up and catches this magician by surprise. And uh, they begin tussling. Uh, And Dr. Fate grabs the book out of his hands to stop him from doing the world-destroying spell. And uh, the mage pulls out a wand and begins to do a spell. But before he can finish, Dr. Fate, you would think, does some sort of magic. But no, he just punches him in the face, knocking him out. And he falls to the ground and dies. But there's still a lot of magic in the air. 
and the trees and the fish have been, you know, given sort of sentience or given sort of a a driving force by this magic. And so the trees begin to attack Dr. Fate and Inza and the fish are like, hey, come in the water and we'll attack you. Like they don't come out of the water. They are just like, once you, if you ever come in the water, we're going to get you. We're fish. So Dr. Fate grabs a tree and then hits all the other trees with this tree and forces them back into being regular trees. Then he destroys the book. He keeps saying atomic energy, which I understand is like a lot of atomic discoveries are happening right now. And and right now that's Dr. Fate's like whole thing. He's like he controls like the, the massive amount of atomic energy within his body. But that, I will say, is really more of um, uh, Captain Adam's uh, situation. Uh, I like Captain Adam. Yeah, because the Adam is Ray Palmer. Captain Adam... Yeah, okay. Yeah, because he's the Air Force captain. Yeah. Um, that's more his shtick. He's not, he hasn't been created yet. He doesn't get created until, I'm assuming, near closer to the atomic age. Closer to, like, the 80s. Maybe 60s, 50s. I don't know. Uh, we haven't gotten there yet, so I don't know all about him. Uh, and he destroys it, turning it to dust, and then throws it into the sea. And as the dust hits the ocean, uh, the fish... Uh, it, it heaves and hisses, and the fish die by thousands. So um, Dr. Fate contributes to massive sea life death, which, hey, dude, the oceans are really, really important. You can't just be killing fish willy-nilly like that in massive amounts by thousands, thousands. Uh, and then Inza and Dr. Fate fly off, having saved the day, and that is the Dr. Fate story. I will say Dr. Fate shoves a lot into six pages. Uh, but I still don't understand why people who are going to destroy the world are like, I got to get that money first. So, but that's going to do it for More Fun Comics number 58. And that's also going to do it for this week's episode of Issue by Issue Golden Age. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Hope you liked the comics. I, I, I hope you didn't get too annoyed by me yelling uh, or podcast yelling about the Tong stuff and the, the, the racism in the Zatara story it just makes me really mad that what you can write, there's so many of these stories don't have anything to do. Like they don't depict people in racist ways uh, for the most part. And I understand it's 1940 and people are white people are just really, really racist back then, but still come on. Uh, it's just, it's just, it's just, the logic isn't there, like, but I, I, I'm not going to get up on another rant. I'm not going to get on another rant, I promise. Uh, hit us up on the socials. Uh, I keep remembering, I keep trying to remind myself to say them, because uh, obviously people are more, like, auditory on podcasts. They don't want to go to the show notes, but they're in the show notes, Instagram, threads, Twitter. Uh, we post, we, I post, uh, the comic covers of the issues that we cover, and then fun panels from inside i'll probably post from dr fate probably post the uh one of his tower uh which is which is cool uh you know the debut of of the tower of fate um but uh and i'll probably post like that image of uh zatara and tong sleeping with their little feet sticking out and of course the comparison between the missing link and and kara the missing link woman just to show you just the just the disrespect um but yeah hit us up over there it's it's a fun time it's a good time 
rate and review the podcast. You know, you know the whole podcast shtick. You've listened to podcasts before. It helps out the show. All that, all that nonsense. And tell your friends about it. But, uh, but I'm gonna get out of here. Uh, so until next time, which will be on Friday, issue by issue crisis. Uh, I'm your host, Nick Byers, and I'll see you around. (laughs) 